What's happening, weirdos? This is the wonderful, the incredible, and the brilliant Lori Santos. She is the host of the new podcast, The Happiness Lab, which I have been enjoying and highly recommend. She is also a cognitive scientist and professor of psychology at Yale University, here to talk about happiness, which is something I think we're all interested in, at least I certainly am, and she did not disappoint. So I'm very excited for you guys to hear this one for sure. I do have a couple live dates coming up. Both of them are at Largo, October 7th. I'm doing my stand-up show. It's the only stand-up date I have currently. Uh, It's me and guests. It's always amazing. And then on October 18th, me and Val are doing a joint podcast, Endless Honeymoon Podcast with Moshe and Natasha, Moshe Kasher and Natasha Leggero. So it'll be the two, the four of us on stage talking with you guys, doing a joint podcast together, a We Made It Weird and an Endless Honeymoon. For both uh, of those events, go to Largo-LA.com. Hope to see you there. It means a lot when you do. And as you guys know, this podcast is supported by the Pete's Picks. These are things that I actually use and I actually love. Case in point, there it is. We have a new one. It's Olipop. I have been loving Olipop for many, many months now, and I reached out to them, and I'm so happy to be working with them. They are an incredible, healthy soda. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. I love soda, or I should say I used to love soda, but I literally haven't had it in a decade. Really? For real? But then we went to a restaurant uh, called Cafe Gratitude here in Los Angeles, and they had Olipop, and Val and I both tried it. I got the grape, which I loved immediately because it reminded me of the grape soda that I loved at the bowling alley, literally at the bowling alley when I was a kid. I would always get grape soda and it tasted exactly like it. And Val got the vintage cola, which I also have had since then, which is incredible. And the vintage cola tastes incredible. It has just two grams of sugar as compared to regular Coca-Cola, which has 38 grams of sugar. I mean, it's, it's nuts. Two versus 30, 39, excuse me, 39 grams of sugar. Their orange squeeze flavor, which I also love, has five grams of sugar compared uh, compared to orange Fanta, which has 44 grams of sugar. We all know sugar is garbage. What you probably don't know is that there's an amazing tasting healthy soda. And it's not just healthy because it's lower in sugar. It's healthy because it has uh, prebiotics, which are super important for your uh, for your microbiome and better digestive health. But it also has plant fiber in there. When I read that, I, I did a double take because it just tastes like soda. It's like, how are they getting plant fiber in here? Turns out it's soluble fiber, which means it's dissolved into the drink. You don't notice it. You don't taste it, but it's giving you that goodness. It's so hard to get both prebiotics and plant fiber into your diet. But boom, drink some soda pop, drink some Olipop, and you're getting not just regular soda pop, drink Olipop, and you're getting both of those things into your diet, which is so hard. It's not hard to get sugar in your diet. 90% of Americans consume more than the USDA's daily recommended added sugar intake, which is 30 grams. And sweetened beverages like soda are the leading source of added sugars in the American diet. So Olipop is much, much lower in, in sugar than conventional soda. And... But, uh, wonderful, beneficial things for your for your microbiome and for your gut. Plus, on top of all that, 
no corn syrup, no artificial ingredients like aspartame. Olipop is made with natural ingredients that are actually good for you. It's the fastest growing functional beverage brand in America. They have amazing vintage cola flavor, classic root beer, orange squeeze, cherry vanilla, strawberry vanilla, and my favorite, classic grape. These are amazing drinks. I love them. And if you want to show your support of this show, give it a try. They're so confident that you'll love their products. They offer a 100% money-back guarantee for orders placed through the website. And I've worked out a special deal for weirdos. Receive 15% off your purchase. I recommend trying the variety pack. It's a great way to try all the delicious flavors. Go to drinkollipop.com weird or use promo code weird at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K. O-L-I-P-O-P dot com slash weird. Olipop can also be found in over 5,000 stores across the country, including Kroger, Whole Foods, Sprouts, and Wegmans. So give it a try. Do your gut and your mouth a favor and show your support of this show. Also, we got our homies, our homies, I'm a dad, at Living Libations for years. Clearly, I'm careful about what I put in my body, but I noticed that I wasn't being very careful about what I put on my body. And of course, the skin and beauty and hair products we put on our body end up in our body, absorbed through the skin into the bloodstream. But I didn't know that. I was buying shaving creams and face washes that I thought were fancy and good because they were expensive, honestly, and French and sold in the mall but they're actually filled with chemicals linked to disease and toxicity levels never intended for humans. These corporations don't care about you. They just want your money. So I want to eat food where I recognize the ingredients and I want my skincare to be the same. And that's where Living Libations came in. They have amazing, amazing, amazing high-end beauty products with ingredients that you can recognize and pronounce and feel good about putting in and on your body. I started with their ginger exfoliating scrub, which not only has plants, oils, and extracts that I recognize as real and natural, but is the most badass, hardcore exfoliating scrub I've ever used in my life. I use it before I shave, makes a huge difference. And when I shave, I use their Zen Shave Balm, which is so clean and natural and moisturizing, you can actually use a dab of it as your aftershave. Try doing that with some anonymous neon blue goo shot from a pressurized can. And at night, Bo Val and I use the Best Skin Ever Moisturizer. Smells great, feels great before bed. And we've just started as a family using their sun, their sun uh, protection products, which are based in zinc and not in chemicals. We're using that for Lee. We're using that for ourselves. And I highly, highly recommend that. But chances are, whatever your skin needs for face, body, eyes, teeth, even infants, Living Libations has a premium, natural, and wonderful product to replace the random chemical nightmare they sell you at 7-Eleven. And this is a great way to support the show. You can get something small, you can just get a tongue scraper and show your support of the show, or get something big, get overdue like Val and I did, your entire medicine cabinet. Uh, Either way, we appreciate it. Go to livinglibations.com and use promo code WEIRD for 20% off. That's livinglibations.com, promo code WEIRD for 20% off and show your support of the show. Last but not least, can you hear this? I'll put it on the mic. Uh, Maybe you you can't hear it. (laughs) Is the Apollo Neuro. You've heard me talk about Apollo Neuro on the podcast. Uh, Many, many episodes of We Made It Weird. We talked about it with Chris Martin. We, Val and I, are addicted and in love with our Apollo Neuro wearable tech. It's a new wearable that you wear around your wrist on the inside, or you can wear it around your ankle. I have some friends that I got some for. They wear it on their ankle. This is a wearable that helps your body recover from stress. 
using a, a series of very, very specific vibrations. In the same way that music can elevate your heart rate or get you uh, relaxed, this is using the same kind of idea, sending vibrations, gentle, soothing vibrations to train your nervous system to recover and rebalance after stress. It can help you relax, sleep, focus, and be more productive. It's basically like a wearable hug for the nervous system using touch therapy to help you feel safe and in control. And no exaggeration, this is not, I'm not reading from copy, it has changed my life. It is uh, help with energy in the morning. That's the first setting that I use before a workout, energy and wake up. It's basically like a shot of espresso, but you don't have to drink anything or put anything in your system. It just gets your pulse jacked. It's really, really amazing. Social and open is a wonderful setting before parties and such. Clear and focused, I actually have it on right now because I am working and I'm recording this intro. So that's why I tried to hold it up so you could hear the vibrations, but they're very, very mild. Clear and focus is a wonderful way to get into that flow state and focus hard on some work without distraction. Rebuild and recover is wonderful after a hike, after a workout. It's also great after a stressful situation. A tense breakfast with family, perhaps. Meditation and mindfulness was the one that really converted me for Apollo. It's the first thing I did with it is I sat down to meditate and without any exaggeration with the Apollo on, it was the deepest meditation I've had in years. I was like, is this thing meditating for me? It was so helpful to keep me embodied and to keep me grounded as I, as I was doing my uh, practice. Relax and unwind is what I put it on at night when we're watching TV, helps me get ready for bed. And when I'm in bed, sleep and renew. So it's basically like having like a switch box for your entire nervous system and something, one of the best things about it is it's something you can do. You feel stressed, you go on your phone, you open the app, you put on meditation and mindfulness, it starts calming you down. Or you just had a stressful thing, you put on rebuild and recover. It's just wonderful to have that agency. And Apollo Neuro actually trains the nervous system to cope with stress better over time, meaning the more you use it, the better it works. It was developed by a neuroscientist, Dr. David, who was on the podcast, and a board-certified psychiatrist who has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for nearly 15 years. The Apollo's effects on stress, sleep, cognitive performance, and recovery have been proven in multiple clinical trials and real-world studies. So this is not a mood ring. This is not woo-woo. This is hard science, and it works. It is beautiful. And you can get 10% off and show your support of the show by going to apolloneuro.com slash weird. That's 10% off at A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com slash weird and show your support of the show. All right, everybody. Enjoy Lori Santos. I sure did. Check out the Happiness Lab. Hope to see you on October 7th for Stand Up at Largo and October 18th for a live podcast at Largo. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy Lori Santos. Get into it. Hey, can you hear me? <laughs> there you are. <laughs> we were just having issues. Hi, Lori. How are you? Hey, good. Thanks. I'm uh, I'm good. Hap- I'm good to see you. I'm good to see you. Yeah, I'm good to see you too. <laughs> good. I'm just going to own the mistake. Where Where are you on a sound stage? It looks like you're. In front- uh, I'm in a closet, but I have a blanket up to make it not look like it's as much of a closet. But then it just looks kind of creepy and weird. So yeah. Yes, and you can see I'm making zero effort. Uh, there's literally yeah. just garbage right here. Yeah. And I'm so sorry, but that's to disarm you. That's to make you feel welcome. How are you doing? Thank you for doing the show. How do you feel? I'm good. Yeah, go ahead. What are you What are you up to today? What are you in the middle of? Something incredible? Uh, I actually just had a very cool conversation with uh, a world fellow at Yale. So these are folks from industry who come in for a year who 
does AI and ethics with DeepMind at Google. So she's trying to figure out like how to prevent the singularity. And it was like talking to somebody out of a sci-fi movie, but like really cool. But also like, wait a minute, this is like real life that we're going to have deep fakes in like two years. And yeah, it's all very. What do you mean by a deep fake? Because we already have deep fakes. You mean like, like a autonomous deep fake? (laughs) Yeah. Kind of like they can do on their own or just, uh, you know, she was saying that, um, you know, with technology now, like, you know, this was nice as a podcaster to, she could just take my voice, two minutes of my voice from my podcast and just make me say anything. I'm like, well, should you make me read the ads? Cause that <laughs> would be much oh easier. Oh my God. That anyway, would be but, yeah. great. They, they can adjust the dial for enthusiasm and sincerity. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> well, that's pretty creepy. Were you creeped out by it? Uh, I was, you know, it was, it was what it was, but it was, it was a fun conversation. It was, you know, it was a person who was excited to be at Yale and it was a cool conversation. And so I was enjoying it. Yeah. Was this for your podcast? No, no, it was just, she's a visitor at Yale. So we were just chatting, but that was, you asked me what, what my day was literally, I was two minutes ago talking about the singularity. And so now we'll talk about how things get weird in podcasts and all this stuff. You know? Well, so. we can talk about whatever you want. I'm just happy uh, to have somebody as interesting as you are. On the show. I hope you feel welcome. And we'll take, I know uh, it's usually a long podcast, but we won't go as long as we normally do. So you can get back to talking about robots and (laughs) and the singularity and all that sort of stuff. Well, before we get into like, I'm I'm super concerned with asking you questions you've been asked a million times. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to ask you questions I doubt you've been asked. Just I'll ask you three and you can pick your favorite. Uh, Have you ever seen a ghost? Have you ever seen a UFO? Or have you ever almost died in an interesting way? Um, and that, I, there, we're clear. I may ask you, <laughs> what do people get wrong about happiness in the future? But at least I'll have asked you that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, haven't seen a ghost, although I grew up in a house that allegedly had ghosts because um, a woman died in our basement. So we were always a little creeped out going into the basement because, you know. Yeah, I was yeah, going to say, you're from cool. Massachusetts, right? Yeah, I grew up in New Bedford, Massachusetts. So um, I, so they're old, old, old for the U.S. houses and um, yeah. could be fun that way. Yeah, but, but never actually aware. saw a ghost. Um, uh, never saw a UFO. Um, saw lots of things I thought were shooting stars, but were really airplanes. My husband's like, that's an airplane, <laughs> not a shooting star. Always a heartbreaker. Um, yeah, it's yeah. like Phoebe Bridgers has a really beautiful song called Chinese Satellite. And the chorus is, I wished, I wished hard on a Chinese satellite. So it's a song about <laughs> yeah. that very human uh, mistake of thinking something is angelic and cosmic. Um, and wait, what was the third one? Forget. Well, the third one is if you've ever died. But now I just want to broaden it and be like, for all of the fun that you have and the fun that I've had enjoying your work and enjoying your podcast, talking about, you know, some pretty like tangible, rational, left brain provable, deconstructible, reconstructable things. What in your life, before I bore you, with what do people get wrong about happiness? So that's the question that's looming over your head. If you don't don't really take advantage of this tangent. What's something in your life that that was just like, you just couldn't make any sense of it? Has something ever happened to you um, that you were just like, that doesn't fit into any of my models? I feel like there's lots of things in life that, that do that. Um, uh, lately, a very sad one is a very close friend of mine who's my age, like, you know, young 40s, um, just got diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And mm. so that's been like, wait, why did that happen to a good person? And she's like, you know, if you pick the college friend who was like, 
vegan and all organic and drank the kombucha and stuff. She's like that friend. And you're like, how did this mm. happen? So mm. bad things happening to good people, that would be in the domain of, you know, uh, mm-hmm. things that I don't understand and make me say what's going on. And, in you know, psychologically, like, how do you process that? How do you kind of deal with your own mortality and kind of come to terms with it? So. Well, I really liked, uh, I listened to the episode. First of all, sorry about your friend. I don't want to be a yeah, sociopath yeah. and just move forward, but I, um, that's very sad. And I'm very interested in, I mean, the trauma of that for her and for you from listening to your show, I'm learning that these are almost interpreted by your brain as, as real as physical traumas. I thought that was very helpful. Yeah, yeah, and, totally. And I think, you know, the, uh, it, it's one of these things where I was ready to be so devastated. I was ready for her to be so devastated, but she's also kind of living up to the, what the research shows at least so far, which is, you know, she's finding so much meaning in this. Like she's kind of doubled down on, you know, kind of taking care of her daughter and taking care of other people. She's felt like she's like renewed all these social connections because when that happens, you know, so many people find out about it and someone you haven't talked to in college kind of comes back. Um, She's, you know, she put together this kind of GoFundMe campaign to help out and people, you know, from all walks of life in her past are donating. But many social of them snacking. saying, yeah, social snacking, but many of them saying that they donated because of something that she doesn't remember that she did, you know, many, many years ago. In fact, one of her friends noted, you know, this is that for that time, you know, when we were really drunk, when you held my, <laughs> held my hair when I was vomiting in the bath and like, she's like, I don't remember it, but you, at the end, like you made me wipe my mouth before I went back out. And like, that was like one of the kindest things people ever did. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's reminding her that in the, you know, just in the face of trauma and bad stuff, like these good things that you do have these ripple effects and they'll come back, you know? And so, yeah. So lots of powerful stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't it, well, it can go either way, obviously. It can go many, many ways. But people that find out that are grap- grappling with their mortality, yeah, um, boy, I sure prefer the stories of people that go like, oh, my God, this is like sand going through our fingers. So why are we so mad at each other? Why don't we forgive each other? And why don't we? One of my favorite stories of somebody dying in the hospital is an ant crawled across their food tray and they just were moved to tears at the, the miracle of consciousness in an ant Mm-hmm. An ant was alive and real. And all of these things that our brain sort of prioritizes as not important, or we prioritize as not important, become the most important thing. So in in uh, that area, what what role does death play in happiness? I, like, and if we didn't die, would ice cream taste good? That's, that's a good yeah, question. This is, this is a really interesting question, because I think you know, the, like facing our own mortality, right? Incredibly scary, anxiety provoking, frustrating, angering, all the things. It comes with all these negative emotions. And I think our move is to not pay attention to things that give rise to negative emotions, especially things we like so deeply can't control, like, you know, death and taxes, as it were, right? Mm. Um, but there's evidence suggesting that facing that can really give you a sense of purpose and meaning, um, both when you are facing your own mortality really directly and for the people you have careers who have to face this stuff day in and day out, you know, surprisingly, you know, palliative care workers, you know, people for, you know, who are getting bad, just awful, awful news in their career all the time, you know, they often report having a stronger sense of meaning and purpose 
And this has given rise in the field to this idea of what's called post-traumatic growth, right? We've all heard of this idea of post-traumatic stress. You go through something bad and, you know, stressed out and whatever. But there's also a lot of evidence for post-traumatic growth that you go through something terrible or you get some really awful news or the worst possible thing happens to you that you could have imagined happening and you come out of it feeling stronger, more resilient, ready to take on the other bad stuff in life often more socially connected because, you know, the people you care about who really matter kind of come out of the woodwork. Um, and then you just get a sense that your life had purpose. And, and this is kind of scary, right? Like no one would wish on themselves or the people they care about, like a horrible cancer diagnosis or some sort of awful trauma. But oddly, those kinds of events, when they happen, often lead to people reporting that they experience more, more good than bad from it. Mm -hmm. um, on my podcast, I interviewed this guy, J.R. Martinez, who was a, a Marine in combat in Iraq, and his Humvee blew up. So he was burned over like three quarters of his body. He spent the rest of his 20s, a whole decade kind of in and out of surgery to like replace all the skin. You know, he was kind of a good looking guy and obviously lost all his looks because his whole face is burned and things. And in the end, I asked him, like, how does he think about this event? And he says, I was blessed. Like, I was blessed that that happened. And it was like, more good than bad for him came out of it. And that's striking. I mean, I think that's kind of something we should take to heart. Like the worst possible thing we could imagine happening and we might leave it saying more good than bad came out of that. And I mean, that gets mm -hmm. really incredible. Yeah. I mean, that sounds, this, this podcast tends to lean spiritual. I don't know if you know that. And that sounds conspicuously um, spiritual, meaning uh, one of my favorite teachers says, like, why would we change if what we're doing is is working? So like it's these disruptions. Mm -hmm. So the the human animal or the ego or the or the conditioned mind or the grooves in your brain, but you could speak to that more than me. We're going around, especially by the time we're a certain age, we just have certain well grinded grooves and we respond to everything in the same three or four ways. And my Richard Roy, the teacher says, this is why a lot of old people are sort of a drag to be around is because they, you kind of know they're going to give you one of their three. It's like the shell game. They're going to give you one of their three responses. And one of the things that life seems to do is disrupt and, and, and suffering he defines as whenever we're out of control. So obviously somebody being burned in that horrible way, I'm curious, was their framework larger or was meaning like cosmic or was it just, I'd really love Lori for you to speak to the idea of like, a lot of people go like, well, my wife left me right when I was, when I was 28. Okay. Uh, you could say, you could hear me say that was a blessing and I believe that, but you could say that's a blessing because Pete went on to meet the love of his life or Pete made a TV show about it. These are all sort of like tennis. It's right. It's low balls. Or you could say, I was introduced to something that I could trust when I was out of control, something larger, even my suffering being a part of a larger corporate structure. I would say that my suffering, I was carrying my share of the suffering in that form and that. So all these sort of new agey things. But like, I feel like most people stay in the first camp going, well, Lori, you got fired, but now you have that TED Talk. And would you have gotten that TED Talk if you weren't fired? 
I'm guessing this beautiful person who had that Humvee accident wasn't just saying, but now I have a book deal or, or I'm going to be heartbroken if it's just a book deal. <laughs> well, it wasn't, it wasn't the book deal. It was really a sense of his own purpose and how he could. So I think in his case, it wasn't necessarily, you know, spiritual qua, like a supernatural agent or God or something like that. But I think it was bigger than him. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, in, in so many ways, you know, like there is the, you know, this happened for a reason. And the reason is the book deal where it feels very local. Mm. But many of us have this sense of things happening for a reason, not necessarily in a spiritual way, like God deigned it to be so or something like that. But just, you know, we kind of get some purpose out of it. And this is, you know, a real part of our happiness, right? Like, you know, happiness isn't just how happy we are in our lives, you know, our positive emotions relative to our negative emotions. Happiness really is about how happy we are with our lives. And that requires some suffering, that requires some pushing yourself, that requires having a life that's filled with some negative emotion too. And, you know, I think this is a misconception people have about the podcast is they think, you know, the happiness lab is just going to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows. And, and you know, we talk about grief, we talk about disease, we talk about suffering. And people say, well, I didn't, you know, even I, I got one complaint recently that someone was like, I can't believe you had an alarm clock sound in your episode. Like how jarring, like I listened to your podcast to feel, you know, calmer. And I was like, you know, alarm clocks, part of life, you know, and mm. I think we can get this idea that true happiness is just like shutting down all that stuff. But, you know, the scientific work really shows that true happiness requires a host of negative emotions, it requires suffering, it requires growth, which often is hard. Well, isn't it sort of uh, arrogant to be like, this is a mistake, this is a flaw in a system? How many stories do we need? I'm going to go to the Matrix, not like it's it's not Beowulf, but like in the Matrix, they say we built a world where there was no suffering and, and whole batches of humans were lost, like their their lab rats killed themselves because they wouldn't accept it. So we know that life isn't just avoiding suffering. And do you understand what I mean by the arrogance of being like, this is a flaw, whereas, please speak to that. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to be, you know, totally frank, I think we're in a a time period where we're experimenting with that generally. And I mean that in a couple ways, right? You know, we have the ability through medical technology to shut off pain, to shut off suffering. You know, somebody says, I'm, you know, feeling a little down or I'm feeling depressed. We give people a pill. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of work right now in psychology on this idea of helicopter parenting, right? You know, these parents who swoop in and want to protect their children from everything. And, you know, the evidence suggests that that style of parenting has led to, you know, the high rates of depression and anxiety that we're seeing Mm. today, or at least, you know, is correlated with that at the very least. And so, you know, this idea that we want to get rid of suffering isn't, you know, great. I mean, I think what, what sort of what we enjoy is, or, or what we get something really out of psychologically is, dealing with our suffering, taking agency over our suffering, you know, kind of like exerting our freedom in the face of suffering. Um, one, one famous set of studies that, you know, people who take intro psychology classes or hear about psychology often hear about are these um, studies on learned helplessness, you know, so this is, you know, back in the mean days, you take a rat in, you shock the rat, you know, if you give it some sort of button, it can press to shut the shock off, you know, even though the rat has the threat of the shock, it feels good. But mm. if it doesn't have any way to control that shock, it, you know, it stops eating, it stops acting, even when you give it a way to shut the shock off, it stops doing it. And this is this mm. idea of learned helplessness. But what people forget is that researchers did studies on 
positive learned helplessness too, right? So instead of a shock, it's like food is just falling. It's falling from the sky. Mm -hmm. And instead of the rat having its own lever that it can use to cause the food to happen, food just like magically happens, like uncontrollably and unpredictably. And what you find is that rats get learned helplessness there too. Like even when what you're controlling is only the positive showing up, if you feel like you, if a rat feels like it doesn't have its freedom and its agency, you know, it doesn't react pretty well psychologically to that. That's right. And that's what a helicopter parent is doing. It's raining food from the sky. Functionally or raining, you know, calling a college's dean when the grade is not what they expect their child to get in some cases. But isn't it interesting just to sort of echo what you're saying? I bet those parents would, uh, you know, I have a daughter, I have a three-year-old now, and I catch myself going like, isn't it sort of weird that I, I'm not going to say I want it. But she probably will have her heart broken or disappointed. She's not going to get into a school she wants. She's not going to get a job she wants. Um, Sometimes you hear uh, the things that kids pick up, like, are you going to cry? It's just like something that they, that's just been happening for decades. Are you, what are you going to cry? Like older kids teasing. I was like, it kills me to think someone's going to say that to my precious baby. And I'm aware that kids saying to me, are you going to cry? had this really robustening, <laughs> that's not yeah. a word, but quality on my life. In fact, that's what the show that I made was about. It's called Crashing, but we could have called it Falling Upward. It was like I got hit with this resistance, and it did break me, and that was ultimately a, a good thing. So I guess that was a very safe uh, sort of styrofoam way of saying, I don't want my daughter to not suffer um, and and the parents in our hypothetical, you know, these helicopter parents trying to prevent and homogenize and, and purell everything even before COVID, no germs. We know these things don't work in the same way that we know that heroin doesn't work. You and I both know that heroin exists. You and I both know where you can buy heroin. But we also know that feeling good all of the time isn't the answer. Like there's a, would you speak to that? Like, I think it's interesting that hangovers exist. It's sort of built in to the biology of the game is that you can't just have like a corporation forward, 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 forward. You have to have dips. You have to have dips. And that's incorporating and integrating that. This seems to be what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And this is really part of the way our psychological system works, right? I mean, you'd you'd think that one way to build a psychological system would be to have it pay attention to absolutes, right? Like absolutely or objectively how much money I have or absolutely like how much delicious stuff I get to eat or how much heroin I get to take or whatever. But our brain doesn't work like that. It really is a relative machine. It notices relative to things. So you don't care about how much money you have. Absolutely, you care about it, you know, relative to your neighbors. You don't care what absolute kind of car you have, you care about it relative to your neighbors or how many, you know, Facebook friends or whatever, right? We're just constantly comparing against other individuals. And that is telling, I think, because it means that like, we're kind of this constant comparison machine. You know, if you live in San Francisco and the weather's beautiful every day, you don't, you know, think about how amazing it is. Whereas here, you know, I live in New England and like we're in this wonderful fall weather where this like brief two week period where it kind of feels like San Francisco and literally all my students are out basking in the sun right now, you know, Mm, like, mm. like you notice the good weather when it's been bad for a really long time. You know, you Mm. notice like how nice it feels to get out of the cold shower, right? Like we're noticing these differences because we're kind of built to do that. 
But that means, you know, a sure way to have very little happiness is to just have everything be perfect, 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 perfect all the time, because we don't notice the transitions. Um, you, it's hard to be grateful when things are really great. And I think, you know, this is something that many of us have seen in the context of the pandemic, right? There were so many things about my just like pre-pandemic life that were amazing, that should have brought me joy every day, but I'd kind of gotten used to them. You know, going yeah. to my favorite coffee shop and grabbing a coffee with like no mask, worrying, should I sit there? Because I'm going to take, you know, like all that stuff. Like it, it's just, I should have been joyful every day at having that opportunity. And like, yeah. I wasn't, you know, hugging my mom before vaccines, right? Like I should have been so joyful, like incredibly joyful, but we sort of forget. And so this is a big problem for human psychology. We don't notice these, we, we only notice changes. We don't notice good steady states. And we get used to stuff. So when something has been good for a while, we stop noticing its goodness. Mm. And this is a phenomenon people call hedonic adaptation. You kind of get used to your own kind of hedonic level. I've Um, heard the hedonic treadmill. Yeah, because the idea is like once you, just like you're on a treadmill and you kind of get used to the speed when you walk off, you're like, whoa. Like, you know, your life could be on amazing treadmill amazingness where everything's going right and you don't get the joy from that necessarily because it's been going right for so long that you've stopped noticing. That's so interesting. I, I, one of the episodes that I love of your show was how do you heal a broken heart? Was that the name mm-hmm. of it? Yeah. yeah. So it's mm-hmm. all about rejection. And it, it was interesting. It was challenging for me because the guy who didn't get the part, who was great by the way, and very funny. And his one man show sounds wonderful. What His name is Tim. Tim Colseri. Yeah. Tim Colseri, I thought he was a delightful guest. And Tim, if you hear this, I thought you were wonderful. And then I just wasn't, I wasn't sure that, so to summarize, and I think people should still listen to it, Tim Colseri was given a part in Full Metal Jacket, and then it was taken away. And then it was taken away again. It's a very interesting story. And it was this like big part, but then he was given a small part. And I was like, I just don't know, isn't, a bit, well, that, taking Tim out of it, keeping that in the back of our minds, but taking Tim out of it, isn't it better to opt out of the game rather than play the game on a different level? Meaning he lost the part, but then he went, but I got this other part and people still think that's cool. And like kind of almost in a Tony Robbins, I love Tony Robbins, but in a Tony Robbins way going, that's amazing. People quote that movie to me all the time. People think I'm awesome. People do think I'm cool. People do think I'm cool. I'm not saying Tim does that. I'm saying I would do that. Isn't it better to just go like, what the fuck, man? Like, right now, Lori, the the present moment, like, you're seated in a closet, your needs are met, your heart is beating, your lungs are inflating, all of these systems are at play, you're being supported by your biology, you're being supported by the earth, you're being held to the planet by these gravity, all this stuff is happening. Isn't it better to, and I'm speaking to myself, obviously, because I'm in show business, to just like, opt out and instead of going like like my I had a talk show that was canceled and I think people would go at least you got to do a talk show right isn't it better to just go like yeah and here we are you know what I mean like instead of going you know what that was pretty cool I don't know what do you what do you think about those two strategies I mean I think you know I think the present strategy is really powerful right and I think you know this idea of being in the present moment, feeling your body, like just kind of focusing on the present as opposed to the what ifs can be incredibly powerful. I also think there's something to be said for, you know, reframing things in ways that like 
make you feel a little bit grateful, right? Mm. And, you know, so like, you know, maybe the Tim Colseri version where it's like, oh, no, I got this other part. Maybe that's not the perfect version. But like coming back to it that like, yeah, I could focus on the part I didn't get or I could focus on the many, many other things that we're grateful for. And this is another spot where I think there is interesting like literature in the in the scientific world where it's like gratitude just seems to be one of these emotions that really boosts your well-being fast. And, and now that you say that, yeah. you know, yeah. Sorry, Laurie. I just wanted to say now that you say that, I'm like, of course, that's one of the things Tim should be doing. I, I don't. It's I'm I'm projecting hard onto him. I'm projecting <laughs> being being in in show business where yes. you've lost parts. I feel like is a special episode for you to like. Oh, like, it yeah. it was like, very dude, challenging. Dude, you were in Full Metal Jacket. Chill, you know. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. But that and that's why I'm always. So I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to say I hear what you're saying. Gratitude and him saying that was a cool opportunity. I did get to do that. And, you know, I have the backdrop from my fucking talk show over here on this wall. <laughs> I'm still enjoying the specialness of that. And then it does seem, and let me, hopefully I can get you back on track. I really didn't mean to interrupt. There is also like, what is lacking right now? Mm-hmm. That is one of the best Zen koans is like, what is lacking right now? That I don't want to say it's better or worse, but that seems to be like even more useful to me than going like, I don't have a Lamborghini, but at least I have a BMW. Like that seems like a trap for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it, it depends on kind of what you're focused on, right? I think anytime we're focused on money or career or accolades or these things, they're going to be short-lived for our happiness. They're going to be incredibly prone to social comparison in a bad way. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be an opportunity cost of the sorts of things that we could be focusing on, whether that's the present moment, gratitude for being alive, right? You know, our emotions, even if they're negative, to just be with them and allow them, mm-hmm. right? Like focusing on all of those things is going to be more powerful. And so every time we're like, ooh, this career thing, I'm going to hang on to it. Like we'd just be better off if we focused on you know, just something else. Well, oh, two quotes come to mind. Fear is excitement without breath. Uh, that's from a book called Existential Kink that I really love. And Eckhart Tolle says, how you feel right now is how you feel about your life, which is partly why I asked you when we started, like, how do you feel right now? What were you just doing? Yeah. And that is really powerful to me. Something you said earlier, like the only time I've ever thought about buying a fancy car is when I'm at the comedy store here in LA. And that's the only time the comedians are out socializing by their cars. Mm-hmm. And you see that this guy has a Tesla and this guy has a Jaguar. And I literally have the dirtiest Volvo. It's never been one. It's like <laughs> ridiculous because I have a baby. I don't have time for that sort of stuff anymore. But that is so interesting. Does anything else come to mind in this opting out of like realizing the the system, advertising, consumerism, uh, achievement, the the performance principle. You, Lori, you're special because you did Rain Wilson's podcast, and now you're doing this a far superior podcast. I'm just getting Rain's a buddy of mine. Um, <laughs> like that performance p- principle. Does anything else come to mind when you go? Just lay it down. Just just put it down. Like your friend with the diagnosis. Like you and I. Someday we'll be dying, and we will go. It wasn't. It wasn't that. It was all an excuse to to be together or it was all, tell me, tell me what you think when I say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is just this idea that, you know, we have some control over that, you know, the Eckhart Tolle quote you gave is really about the fact that we get to control how much suffering we engage in. Right. Like Mm. when we're, when you're, you know, walking by those Teslas at the, you know, after the comedy show, 
and it's hurting you, like that suffering is in part your fault. I mean, not Absolutely. your fault in a guilty no. way. No, but, but, it just occasioned a, it. Yeah. It was something in me. Yes. And, and I think that, you know, this, this is a principle that I take heart in, right? You know, you might say like, oh, feeling like something's your fault makes you feel bad. No, it makes you realize you have control over something. Mm. You know, one of my favorite Buddhist parables is this uh, parable of the second arrow, which you might have talked about on your podcast, but parables go something like this, you know, Buddha is talking to his followers and he asks his followers, you know, is it bad to get shot, you know, in the back with an arrow? And the, you know, his followers say, yeah, it sucks to get shot with an arrow. He says, okay, was well, it worse to get shot with two arrows, like one and then a second one? And people say, yeah, that's much worse. And so Buddha goes on to say, you know, the first arrow is just life. That's just, you know, dukkha. It's just bad stuff's happening out there. The poop happens, right? But the second arrow is yours. It's your reaction to the poop happens, mm. right? You know, so you could be like, my Volvo sucks. And like, you know, I have this Tesla. That's, that's just a fact of the world. But then, you know, which is the, maybe the first arrow. But then you stab yourself with the second arrow where you drive home in your Volvo and you're pissed and you come home and then you're mad at the kid and like you're slamming things around. Like, that's all you, right? And when yeah. you realize that you control the second arrow, like you don't have to stab yourself with it, whether it's about jealousy over a car or your reaction to some bad news, whether it's serious health news like my friend got or just like you're stuck in LA traffic, whatever it is, right? Like our reactions to things is kind of on us, which is good news because it means that's something we can control. Uh we could end right now. This is a nah. free podcast. All right, bye. Click. Yeah, <laughs> that would be so gangster. I would love that. You just left. I, I love that. Val, my, my wife, Val, um, really changed my life recently. Was I got, I got a text from a family member, and it just sent me into all of this rage. I couldn't believe it. And it was really, it was a total second arrow situation. It was this interpretation that isn't true. It's not based on facts. Any, it wouldn't stand up to any scrutiny. You go like, they are always, are they? Like anything, any pausing and looking at it, would you would see that you are just having, uh, it's not an unfair, we don't have to be ugly about it, but it's an irrational response. It's like a, you're being overcome by something. And she, Val blew me away, and I'd love to hear you talk on this. She said, it's not, she was quoting Tara Brock, I think, it's not the feeling it's the shame that you're having the feeling. And I don't like thinking I'm a person that one text can take me from my perfect life. And then also, before I give it to you, Richard Rohr, again, I was just reading him. He was like, that rage was in, was in me. And the text, in the same way you can frame it positively, the happiness was in me. And then I saw a sunset or a, a hot air balloon. And I like an unexamined thought would be like the, the hot air balloon made me happy. But have you ever watched a bad movie when you're newly in love? It's the best movie you've ever seen. Like that's because it's your inner state being reflected. This is why the Buddhists are always talking about wiping the lens or cleaning the mirror. It's like, we're, we're not seeing reality. We're seeing our inner state projected onto reality. And, and would you talk about that? The shame of feeling feelings. And I think we're in the same area. Like, it's not yeah. about happiness isn't about getting rid of these things. It's about accepting them, letting them in and, and, and giving them their due, but not overdue. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are different kind of traditions that deal with that, right? You know, there's the one you mentioned, Tara Brock, you know, she has all these excellent meditations where she has like practices that really allow you to experience your emotions, like sit with your sadness, you know, sit with what it feels like. And I feel like through the act of doing that, you often 
you don't kind of explode in the same way with the same shame because you kind of worked through it. You've kind of given that sadness like it's due and it's kind of taken its course. You know, emotions for better or for worse kind of work like ocean waves where they sort of, you know, go up and they crest it, but then they're going to eventually go away. And, mm. you know, it feels like it's going to take forever. But if you really sit down and measure it and do those practices, it takes like 15 minutes to overcome a urge is really mm. what the what the research mm-hmm. suggests. So I think that's kind of one thing. But, you know, another thing is I think one of the reasons we have this shame over our reactions is like, again, we could control it, right? You know, like if you look at it, like you're this toddler who kind of blew up for no reason, but was like, well, you didn't really have to do that. And, Mm. you know, that gets to a different ancient tradition, which is one that I talk about a bunch on my podcast, which is this ancient Stoics who get a bad rap. I think everybody thinks the Stoics were just like anti-emotion and like they just wanted you to be, you know, straight faced the whole time. No, they were really into positive emotion. They thought they had all kinds of techniques to cultivate that. They were just kind of down on negative emotion because of that kind of shame. I mean, the core I think emotion in the Stoics was like, you know, I don't want to be the guy who's reacting to that. I don't want to be the guy who got some text and is like pissed off all day and slamming things around. And what what habits can I cultivate in myself to control that? So I'm like, never that guy again. Mm, Brilliant and beautiful. I was thinking of the Stoics earlier. Ryan Holiday is a friend of mine, and he gave me that coin that says Memento Moria, which, by the way, is also the name of a store at Disneyland, <laughs> in right by the Haunted Mansion. Haunted There's Mansion. A, Brilliant. Yes. yes. Yeah. And I said to one of the staff, I go, isn't that, remember, you'll die, and you see kids going in the store, children, <laughs> remember, you'll die. Um, but that is a wonderful, we're back to where we were 10 minutes ago, which was like, it's not whistling in the dark and acting like we're not going to die. In fact, I I feel like we're saying uh, these so-called negative emotions and and so-called bad news of death. Because really, if you can't incorporate or integrate death, isn't happiness stupid? Aren't we just talking about writing a book on burning paper? Like, what does it matter? And isn't that one of the sort of existential dreads that we have to overcome uh, and that and that's where spirituality comes into play for me. But I to to not that you're you're being beautifully spiritual. You don't have to be. I'm just uh, delighted that you quoted Buddha and all that stuff because I love that language. But like it seems to me, re- religion religio to reconnect, right? And and you, the person in the Humvee accident and and your friend who was diagnosed who had all of this reconnection. It seems to me a sense of participation a sense of oneness with what's happening. We love the idea that the butterfly flaps its wings and that led to the whatever, the extinction of the dinosaurs or whatever it might be. But so too are you and I part of, you're not, Laurie, like an animation cell put over a background. You are part of the world. Like, doesn't it seem, or, or would you rather speak to a feeling of interconnectedness, a feeling of belonging, community, not just with other human beings, but with reality, uh, and your death being a part of that reality. I remember when um, Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking about death, he was like, I've feasted on the flora and fauna of this earth, and one day I will die and I will become the flora and fauna of this earth. And I was like, that is a deeply mystical perspective from a very rational, beautiful man that I wouldn't want to change for a million dollars. Would you speak to that, that feeling of I'm not a visitor here, how that, in, how that in, informs our happiness? Yeah, well, in, in lots of ways. I love that. I hadn't heard the Neil deGrasse Tyson quote. Isn't that one beautiful? of my favorite. Yeah, one of my favorite versions of this comes uh, from this guy, Bill Hamilton, 
um, who was the biologist that came up with like all the deep biology for the selfish gene, right? Like he was the guy who figured out basically you're just your genes propagating in the world. Like he was the dude that figured that out. So you might think of him as like this pure rationalist who's like, you know, like, like, Mm. you know, but, but actually when he thought about his own death, he thought about his own death a lot. And he put together in his will that he wanted his body when he passed away to be brought back to the forests of Brazil, which is one of the spots where he did his research, um, set up like with chicken wire so that big animals couldn't get to it so that his body would be eaten by the coprophaneous beetle, which is like, I don't know, some tiny beetle, Um, but it glows in the night. And he has this beautiful, almost wow. like a poem. I mean, it's just in his will, but it's that, you know, in, in my, he, they will eat my flesh. You know, I will burn in the night sky with them and I will become one with this world and this beautiful display. And with that, I will never die. And like, hmm. this is a dude whose like whole life was just about, you know, the pure rational, like, you know, yeah. again, you know, pulling away that even we exist for a good reason. We're just like selfish replicators. That was his research. And so I think even, you know, in the depths of like, you know, being real, like, you know, you don't have to be a spiritual practitioner to participate in kind of what these folks are participating in, which is, I think, from from the scientific perspective, what folks would call like a sense of awe. Um, and there's lots of evidence that incorporating more awe into our lives can improve our well-being. It's actually a very hard thing for people to study because you have to give people a sense of awe, which, you know, <laughs> it's hard to have that moment where the ant is walking across the table and you yeah. feel one with the universe. There's no cyberball um, for that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, in fact, the, the uh, stimuli that people used to use, uh, which worked in Democrats, was you could have Democrats watch the first Obama uh, inaugurations or acceptance speech when he uh, you know, accepted that he'd won the election. Mm. And for Black Democratic participants, that institutes this you know, sense oh, of being wow. bigger and overcoming and so on. Another way that people uh, experience a sense of awe um, is something through, through something called the overview effect, which very few of us get because it's the effect that happens when you shoot up in a rocket into space and look at the earth from above it. Um, Mm. And many of, again, you know, like engineers, like pure rationalists have these moments where everything feels like one, our differences feel like they're gone. We're part of something bigger. And it's this incredibly rich sense that drives a deep, deep, deep sense of joy and a deep sense of happiness. Um, This is why I prescribe to my students, like, get out in nature. If you're having a bad day, get out in nature. You know, there's a state park near Yale's campus, walk there and look up at the tallest tree and just stare up at it, you know, or Mm. get out, you know, to where there's no light pollution and look up at the night sky and realize where you fit in it. And, you know, those are little tiny versions of that, but rather than kind of making us feel small or not part of something, sometimes the appreciation that we get from the natural world can make us feel more part of it. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. I I sometimes, uh, I don't get sad, but it's, it's interesting that the religious for all the problems that religion and spirituality can have, like the, all, all the bad raps it can get. I love anything that builds a bridge, meaning the nuclear physicist or the psychologist or the person that knows the inner workings of that uh, beetle. They are awful, full of awe, participants in this, in what this is. And... Uh, I, I, I'm a panentheist. I, I believe that the the one life is in all things. Uh, you know, physics is is certainly leaning that way. So, like someone who has a love, they love. He loved that beetle so much. He wanted to be consumed by it. 
that is literally as old as religion gets. That's that's basically cannibalism and and it's the Eucharist and it's all of these things. I even I say this to be inclusive. People that believe in uh, nothing still believe in a nothing that erupted into everything. And and, and I don't say this to b- belittle it. I say that's a pretty amazing. That's a nothing worthy of awe. And then when you die, you go into nothing. That's merging into your God. That's the same thing as like the deists, but you know, it's, it's going into the source and your source is nothing. I'm saying this to say, we're all on the same side. Some of us just get real goofy with our language. And some of us certainly, I want to concede, take uh, spirituality or certainly religion way too far. And uh, I understand why people are turned off by it. Um, well, there's lots of evidence that people, that, that religion itself, like being a religious person, tends to promote more happiness and more well-being. Interestingly, it's not because of people's beliefs, because you can kind of track people's beliefs, like, you know, do you really believe in God or not? It seems to be about people's practices. Mm. Um, so what predicts if your religion is going to be bumping up your happiness is how much you go to religious services, for example, which kind of fits with the fact that you're probably getting more social connection. You know, you might be engaged in charity and doing nice things for others. You mm. might have moments where you experience more awe because you're hearing the hymns and the prayers and this kind of stuff. Um, and this is true across all kinds of different religions. And so there's, you know, religion's getting a lot of things right. Like, you know, I consider myself to be an atheist for the most part, although a little, you know, agnostic in there, but like everything psychologically we know religions do is like, pretty good for us right from the social connection part to the ritual part we have a whole new episode on our podcast about ritual and how you know far from being these kind of hokey things they're incredibly smart they affect our performance they reduce our grief they allow us to feel more connected with Mm. the people around us right like Mm. so so these practices you know like thousands of year old practices were kind of onto something you know Mm. (laughs) like yeah, I, I just this morning was reading about how Protestantism, which I grew up Protestant, is the only religion, only world religion that doesn't have some form of prayer beads. And it's because we got really into our heads. So we were about like memorizing Bible verses and winning debates and great sermons and stuff. But like most, I think it's all other world religions, Islam, certainly Catholicism, certainly uh, Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, the hits all have some understanding that repetition quiets your mind. And when you quiet your mind, you're happy. There's a great book uh, that the Beatles made popular called Chant and Be Happy. And I was like, just the title, just these things. When I see people doing the Wim Hof method, breathing techniques, cold water, guess what? It's impossible to be petty if you're in a bucket of ice water. It's just impossible. It's impossible to be petty if you're climbing, uh, you know, uh, Everest or whatever it might be. So would you speak a little to the idea that I'm totally with you. Julia Sweeney, who's a a passionate atheist, goes to a religious service because of exactly what you're saying. She's like, it makes me happier, even though I don't believe in God in any way, shape or form. Um, What what about Shredding? I think that, you know, the problem for, you know, people who aren't part of a faith tradition is you have to find your spirituality another way, your awe another way, but also your rituals another way. And one of the things that makes rituals work is like, everybody's been doing them for thousands of years, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like if I'm like, oh, I'm just going to come up with my own ritual, like your brain kind of doesn't buy it, you know? And so th- there's a 
evidence that rituals work a little bit like a medical placebo effect where, you know, the doctor gives you a sugar pill and says, hey, this is going to, I don't know, cure your headache. And then you take it and you're like, oh, my headache's cured. But you needed that doctor to be there looking very formal to say, hey, it's going to cure your headache. I think what many faith traditions do is they have, you know, someone in the robes, you know, like the, the big books that explain this stuff to you, like all of your family and your in-group is telling you to do the same thing. And those have a, those factors have a psychological effect on the efficacy of something else. Just like you need a doctor to give you your sugar pill. You couldn't find one on the ground and think it was going to fix your headache. Yeah. You know, I think religions do that, but that's smart. Like that, that sucks for people who aren't in such faith traditions because you can't make it up yourself. You really have to have this sort of rich model to help you. And so- wow. Yeah. So I think these things are really important and powerful and leave people without these traditions kind of a little lost in certain ways. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a reason that mental health things are on the rise. There's a reason that we never take breaks and Sabbaths anymore and that that's contributing to depression and anxiety, right? Like mm-hmm. um, you don't necessarily have to go for a specific belief system to get the benefits that come out of some of these practices. Mm. I love all of that. I, you made me think of standing up for the judge. You know, it's just some guy who drove a Civic or, or you know, maybe he had a nice car. He's a judge. But you know what I'm saying? We have all of these make-believe things because at the end of the day, we're, we're make-believe people. We're meaning-making people. And I've, Ram Dass, another great teacher of mine, was like, the, the lab coat and the clipboard is a clerical outfit. It, it, it has a clergy feel to it. And, and the word of a doctor... You were talking about learned helplessness. When someone says uh, you are going to die, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like from that point of power that your whole life, you're a child learning A, B, C, and D is for doctor. These are powerful images and they can change how you die or how you live. I mean, it's powerful stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is, you know, I think there's something perhaps special we could debate about you know scientific findings but i think this is one of the reasons that my course and my podcast resonate with so many people is like i'm the yale professor and i'm saying hey science says do x y and z and it just allows people to believe it and and everything we know is that our beliefs matter like our beliefs matter for our healing our beliefs matter for the degree to which we're going to stick with a hard new behavior change like if you can get your beliefs in order um, it's really powerful. Um, you know, one of, one of the examples that people always use in, in the field of positive psychology is the example of uh, Roger Bannister, right? You know, like running Alexis the, the mile as quickly as he could. No one thought it could be done. And then he did it. And then immediately after a bunch of people did it. Why? Right, it wasn't right. like randomly like running training changed in those like year after. It was like people thought like, oh, you can do this now. And now all of a sudden people can do it. And so we forget how much our beliefs can really hold us back. Yeah. I And sometimes, I'm sure you could speak to this, I just had a network pass on a project of mine. So I was thinking about that during your rejection podcast. And I sort of, uh, well, I just caught myself feeling special. I don't think this is special. I bet there's a lot of people like me that get really motivated by that. I, I never, I, I've always hated, because it's me, People who say, if you want me to not do something, tell me I can't do it. I've always been like, look at this jackass. The reason you don't like anything always is because it reflects some part of you. So it just, it came to mind. I was like, sometimes saying you can't run, uh, like the person who did break the four minute mile or whatever it might've been. He was the guy that was like, you can't tell me I'm not going to do it. Very, very interesting things. What, 
what is it? Um, and we can, we, we don't have to, you've already paid, I hate to say paid out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll go again. Bye. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that would be, so I don't know I'll where I'll send I, you my Venmo. <laughs> yes, I owe you so much. But I, I want people to listen to the Happiness Project and I want people to know who you are. And I do want to see if we can get a little bit uh, more before you go. Um, would you, what is it, what is a, because I have my favorites, but God, I repeat them so often. What are your favorite studies? When when you talk to somebody and you go, well, there was a study. What are some of the ones that you just, it just changed your life? Like you, you never thought of yourself or another person the same way once you heard this study. Well, what was one of those? Yeah, I think one of them for me is about social connection. I'm not a naturally like super social person. Like if I'm on a plane, I'm like, you know, headphones, like not necessarily talking to people. Um, But there was a lovely study by Nick Epley that, that literally did that particular study. He put people on trains and he assigned one condition to have people talk to others in another condition. They were just silent. He told them, enjoy your silence as much as possible. Do, do whatever you can privately to kind of make your day go by fast or just some control. And what he finds is that the simple act of talking to people uh, makes people happier. Um, And in fact, the people in the enjoy your solitude condition uh, feel worse after the train ride. And that's, you know, it's it's not like rocket science, but it's really changed for me the way I try to interact, right? Because my natural instinct, the hypothesis is like, that's not going to feel good. It's going to feel awkward and weird. But inevitably, like when you just try to connect with people, it works. And so... You know, this idea that we shouldn't talk to strangers, this idea that strangers don't have anything to tell us, that study has really kind of changed it for me. So that's one big one. Um, another one is a whole host of studies about how bad we are at predicting our reactions to things and how much more resilient we are than we think. Um, and so this is a study by Dan Gilbert and his colleagues, um, who's a professor at Harvard, where he was looking at people's predictions about how they're going to react to good and bad events. Um, the most famous one for nerdy professors, because we are nerdy professors, <laughs> is you get professors to react to how how good or bad they're going to feel depending on their tenure decision. You know, so professors have this weird, very strange thing where you get tenure, where you get a job for life, you know, in your 30s, and then like you, or, or you get fired forever and you have to not be an academic anymore. And so professors predict, oh my gosh, if I'll get tenure, I'll be so happy. It'll be the best thing that ever happened to me. And they predict if I don't get tenure, it'll be the worst thing ever. My life will be over. So, and then- they find out, right? Some get it and some don't. The ones that get it are happy, but not as happy as they predicted. Definitely wasn't a life-changing event in the way they expected. The ones that didn't get it show an even bigger effect where like, they're just not sad. They're not like, it's not even that they're not as sad as they thought. They're just like, not that bothered by it. Hmm. Why? Because they rationalized like this university's stupid. They were out to get me. You figured out some other thing. You have value in other areas of your life. And so this is called a failure of affective forecasting. We can't forecast our own affective reactions to things. Often the things that we think are worse than life are not going to be as bad as we think. Um, wow. Interestingly, even when you have experience with it, so Gilbert uh, and, and other scientists d- have done other conditions. One of my favorites is you get people to predict, you get students to predict how bad they're going to feel if they fail a driver's exam. I failed my driver's exam the first time. So, you know, think about it what you will. But sadly, <laughs> There are people like me who failed it subsequent times. <laughs> I failed it twice. Um, and so in theory, <laughs> I should have been able to predict my reaction at time number two that like if I failed it and I wasn't that upset, you know, I should learn from that. But it turns out you don't. Even if you have the same bad thing happen over and over again, it's 
kind of not as bad as you think. You know, you predict, for example, like with your show, you predict it's going to make me miserable. It actually makes you more motivated, right? You're like jazzed up and feeling good in a way you didn't expect. Right. Um, All that goes to say, I think we just, we are, we don't realize how resilient we are. We have these like superpowers to rationalize and get over stuff really quickly we don't realize we do. And that means we don't take as many risks, right? Because we calculate like, well, if I did this risky thing, it didn't go well, I'd feel really bad. But like, that's just not true. We Maybe we all should be taking more risks than we really think. Yeah, that phrase jumped out in one of your podcasts was risk adverse. And I, like you, can, can hole up. Um, I'm a sensitive person. And my idea of a good time is like laying low. (laughs) And I've never thought that that made me risk adverse. Like for some reason that changed how I thought about myself. I was like, you're not just like a homebody or whatever, you're risk adverse. And when I'm at my happiest and, and most thriving is when I am in an elevator and I talk to somebody and it's really helpful for you to just remind me that like sometimes people don't talk back to you or they think you're weird or whatever and that that's not that big of a deal, that it's, that it's okay. I still remember some flights I had where I talked to the person the entire flight. And of course, all the things we say went by like that. I felt less alone in the world. I literally like think of that person as a friend like that I might see again at some point. I also, it was from your podcast, your wonderful podcast, The Happiness Lab. Um, when someone got rejected for a job, the way that they rationalized it was they didn't reject me, which is very stern and harsh language. They rejected my application. It's such a great human twist. And it is true. It wasn't you. It was your application. And your application is something you can work on. You can, you can buff it up. You can take a class. You can do a thing. You can make the application better. Taking it personally seems like a really, really dumb thing to do. And this is, you know, the kind of thing we do all the time, right? Where, you know, personalization is one of these kind of standard in clinical psych terms, you know, like like mind biases or these sort of forms of thinking that lead us astray. Because we think it's about us, but it's kind of usually not. That is <coughs> it. Bless you. And the risk of specialness. Like my whole life I've worked to become special. And then you don't even realize that if you're special you are apart from the group and you're actually probably looking down on the non-specials. There are all these like negative things that you never even anticipated that, that you need to like surrender. It's all of this, like just get over yourself. It's not about you. Nobody is, you know how many people aren't thinking about either of us right now and the freedom in that and the beauty in that. A mantra I've been using lately is I do not exist. Meaning Pete is a construct. Pete is an agreed upon pattern i'm a pattern <laughs> like there's your gene thing i really am i take so much pride in my daughter I, I i'm i'm an ambitious gene and uh and there's there's something more than that there's something more than pete which brings us into our final topic and then i'll, I'll let you go i i know you're an atheist and i i think that's or, or leaning agnostic and you spend an awful lot of time thinking about consciousness and, and awareness and and life and beauty and awe and gratitude. So without forcing some religious metaphor or teacher on top of it, can you speak a little bit to what you think is looking out your eyes right now? Or what is there an arc to this? Even if you can't back it up with evidence, which I don't think anybody can, does your intuition say this is 
Terrence McKenna talked about reality being pulled towards a, a transcendent object that that wants that seems to desire in the same way that cells splitting into two cells desire life. Uh, a chicken is a way for an egg to make another egg. Like there's a yearning to this. And he applies that to the whole, that it's almost being pulled towards a transcendent object. You could call that transcendent object. God, what do you, what do you make of the cosmos of life, of the meaning of life? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you know, in some ways like Bill Hamilton, the story I told earlier about the beetle guy, right? Like Mm. I think you can, you know, be in some ways a rationalist about evolution, about how we got here, about how consciousness works, and still find incredible beauty in it, right? Um, I, I used to teach this class about Charles Darwin and sort of the evolution of, like, consciousness and human nature and things. And I spent a lot of time talking about Darwin's history because Darwin was a messed up dude about what he figured out. You know, he figured out like, you know, life, like there's no, there might not need to be a designer, right? Like it just is this natural process and it's a natural process that's ugly. It's survival of the fittest, right? You know, people whose genes aren't good, like don't make it into the next generation. That's ugly. And he was a super religious guy, you know, got really messed up about the fact that he'd come up with this theory. You know, for 10 years, he had the like, not even Nobel Prize winning, but like, you know, blow all of like scientific thought away idea. And he sat on it for 10 years because he thought he was the devil's chaplain. You know, he thought that like, he thought that these were like visions that were coming to him that were evil, right? Even mm. though he kind of and spent all this time, you know, so he was really messed up by this. But by the time, like 10 years later, he published On the Origin of Species, this first book about natural selection, he kind of had come, I think, to some sense of awe about the whole process. And so he ends his book not with like, survival of the fittest sucks, you know, kind of sad and bleak. He ends the book by saying, there is grandeur in this view of life that from, you know, so small number of forms, all the many and beautiful things we find have come out. Mm. And that's kind of what I think. Like, I think, you know, there's nothing after this. Like it is, it is, I truly believe in natural selection, but but there's grandeur in that, like that this simple, such a simple process can build us, you know, all the beauty we see in the universe. Like there's real awe and grandeur there. Um, I don't have a tattoo, but I've always said if I ever was brave enough to get a tattoo, I would get a tattoo that says there is grandeur in this view of life and in, in mm. honor Darwin and honor that. So, so again, you know, I'm not sure that answers the question, but it does. I guess it's, it's I just find awe in, in the fact that we can figure it out. Um, you know, Richard Dawkins, another, you know, evolutionary biologist who has his problems. So hard to quote him these days because he's a complicated guy. Um, you know, he has this book called Unweaving the Rainbow, where he once got accused that, you know, by studying the scientific process, you kind of unweave the beauty of it. You know, you're taken by describing what's going on in the rainbow in terms of physics and light, like you kind of unweave the beauty. And he goes on to say, like, no, if anything, understanding the processes of it and like how fragile it is, you know, how complicated it is or how simple it is, right? you can kind of see even more beauty in it. And that's kind of how I think about science and understanding happiness and understanding the mind. I can't believe you thought you didn't answer the question. I know you didn't. (laughs) But that, I mean, one of my passions for, for whatever reason is trying to like this, like thisness, this, and not trying to not extricate the idea of a source from this. If that makes any sense. So yeah. I, I believe you don't have to say I'm doing this for God to be doing it for for this, for this. Because we can both agree that this is happening. 
<laughs> this appears to be happening. Yeah. And and I really think there is a a worship and a and a, a, a much much deeper reverence in what Darwin was doing and what you're doing and 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 what science as a whole is doing. There's a there's a true wonder. Let me just put it this way. When people tell me they believe in God, I often don't like that. Um, and there's there's something to unpack there. I think we tend to not, maybe we don't like people that reflect us perfectly or or people, actually, I kind of think I know what it is. A lot of people believe in God, like, but like a bag of hammers. It's just like in a really stupid, fucking dumbass shortcut to not thinking about it, if that makes sense. So it's this answer. It's like this cheat code to the whole thing. And the person that's splitting the atom into 13 subatomic or whatever it is up to now, that seems like a much more intimate spooning of reality, a lovemaking with reality, than just somebody that goes, there is a source to reality and, and God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And when I, do, go, when I die, I go and party forever. That seems like less reverential and less... I'm being a judgmental person right now, but I'm 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 trying to say there's a lot of beauty in in what you do and and in what your colleagues are doing for what it's worth. <laughs> thank you, thank you. That's one of the reasons we do it. You know, it gives us a sense. I mean, again, you know, when you see, even for me with the happiness stuff, just to see, you know, we're not a blank slate. We have these strong intuitions that are just wrong. You know, where where does that come from? But but you know, by understanding this stuff, we can do better. We can help other people do better, you know, with my podcast mm. helping, you know, thousands and millions of people who listen to it to do better. That is meaningful and it's powerful and it connects you in a way that for me, you know, I wouldn't get with the, you know, off the shelf kind of version of a deity that many people have. So Right. And that's exactly my point. I was leaving a movie. It was Superman. And a kid asked his dad, how did they make Superman fly? And the dad said computers. And then they moved on. And I was like, I was changed. It was in New York. It was Union Square. And I'll never forget it because I was like, that's what so many of us can be doing with God. What made all this? And you just go, God, there's a real, almost like a like a member of the deep clergy that's measuring the radiation blast of the Big Bang. That is like a, you guys are religious as fuck. <laughs> or you know what I mean. You're, yeah. you're involved yeah. in a way that feels like a very profound romance with with reality because you want to know it and listen to it and let it talk to you that's much better than just saying computers i think <laughs> i want to give you one you maybe you've heard this test and it has nothing but this is one just because you probably like these things it's a classic setup where they're saying the test is for one thing but really what they're testing is there's a, a person my friend shane moss told me this there's a person in the elevator and the elevator, the guy is holding a bunch of things and he has a cup of coffee and he hands the person that gets the, the test subject, gets in the elevator and the actor hands the test subject a cup and says, can you hold this for me, please? Because he's trying to rearrange his papers. They do the test and then as the person's leaving, they say, did you see anybody in the elevator? And they say, yes. And they say, how would you describe them? Lori, if the cup was hot or warm, they say he was warm. And if the cup was cold, they say he was cold. And I find such delicious freedom in shining the light on what you're saying. These preconceived mistakes and, and just based on nothing, based on nothing. And when I hear a study like that, when I go, we're smart enough to start getting curious about how we're wrong 
and how we're automatons, basically. And these like, it's why advertising works. It's why movies are entertaining. It's like, and I just love, I just wanted to tell you that one in case it made you uh, think of anything or give you yeah. any joy. It's actually my colleague at Yale, John Barge, did that study. Uh, so it's, you know, no close way. to home, close to home. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it's one of the reasons I get into this stuff is, you know, the view from in here is like everything's rational and, and I'm conscious of everything and I'm making these decisions so strongly. But actually, when you look, we might not be. And so I think we have a like a real like duty to understand where we go wrong so that we can do better. You know, the, the planet, the world, everything that we find off from kind of depends on that. That's so good. I just love that. Uh, well, that was plenty. You have lots of things to do. You have studies. I'm telling you about them. You're doing them. Go do them that I might consume them. Please tell your friend, John, the if you talk to him, the enthusiasm as if I was telling you the greatest magic trick I've ever heard of because it was earnest and I didn't know you knew him. And, and maybe you can share how much it meant to me and how it really changed my life. And and thank you for what you're doing. It's it's absolutely having a profound impact on so many people. And people go listen to the, the Happiness Lab. I always want to say project. It's Happiness Lab. Uh, and thank you, Lori. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. You have to say the catchphrase, uh, this is just how we sign off. You say keep it crispy. It doesn't really mean anything. I promise you're not saying some weird code. <laughs> like to keep asle- it crispy? No. You can say it like keep that. It if crisp- you- <laughs> keep it crispy. <laughs> there it is. Thank you so much, Lori. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Ditto, ditto. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. I'm so crispy. My ice cream make you want to eat.